0: Today's reading is Matthew 13, 47 through 52. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom New treasures as well as old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I grew up in the era of classic cartoons on Saturday mornings, such as Rocky and Bullwinkle. Anybody remember Rocky and Bullwinkle? All right, we got some good good people out there. (laughs) During the thirty minutes of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, there there was always a four minute bit called Fractured Fairy Tales. And uh, you can see those on YouTube. I'm told there's like 90 episodes on YouTube. It was made into a comic book shortly after it began on uh, the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. And it had this line at the bottom. Bedtime tales to read while the babysitter is watching TV. And that kind of tells you what what those are like. Uh, Eventually they made it into print in a book. And I actually bought a copy. And um, not recently. But I've had this in my library for some time. And you wonder what pastors read. This is what they read to their kids. And uh, my kids, uh, when they were younger, we would read these at the, I would read these at the dinner table and invariably, whenever I finished one, they would say, one more, one more. It also explains their very demented sense of humor. <laughs> I, I continually thrust this on them and they had no other bearings to know if that was normal or not. And so if you're around them, you know it's me. It's all me. So. What made these fractured fairy tales so appealing? Well, they took a very familiar tale, like a, a Rumpelstiltskin or uh, Goldilocks or whatever it might be, and they changed it in an unexpected way that surprised you, and, uh, and, and uh, most of the time made you laugh, at least in these tales. Well, if you've read the Bible, you know there's something in it that's very similar to a fractured fairy tale, and it's called a parable. It's a story that sounds very familiar at first, and then it surprises you. It, it, it hits you in an unexpected way. And today we're starting a new summer series that's simply called Short Stories by Jesus. Uh, Unapologetically stolen the title from a book by Amy Jill Levine, who is a professor at Vanderbilt University who's written a a book by that that title. If you've read the Bible, maybe you're familiar enough with parables where you go like, oh yeah, 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 I know it's coming. I've heard series on parables. I've read parables. Uh, Um, (laughs) But I want to begin... Perhaps to to maybe cause you to think twice about a response where it's like, oh yeah, I know what's going on here. I want to begin with what parables aren't, what they are not. First of all, they're not like Aesop's fables. They're not like Aesop's fables with some kind of a, uh, a conventional piece of wisdom at the end, like a stitch in time saves nine, or a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Most of the time with a lot of these parables, there's no explanation whatsoever. They just give you the story and there's no explanation at the end. It just, boom, it hits you and off you go. They're not Jesus' sermon illustrations either. So they're not like these homely stories of everyday life in the first century with some kind of like a little calendar verse that you might paste up on your your refrigerator or whatever to kind of keep you positive throughout the day. That's not what these are at all. I've heard pastors say that they are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. But if you read these, most of them are not very religious sounding. They're not very religious sounding at all. And in fact, they're, they're not designed to draw you into some kind of higher spiritual awareness. So what are parables? So, <laughs> Usually I go on, but that was, that was, some good, that was a good tone there. So what are parables? What are parables? Well, they are stories that find their roots in the Old Testament. They find their roots in Israel's Scripture. So if you'd like to, instead of looking at the child, to come over to Judges, Judges chapter 9, all right? This whole side of the room was looking over there. You have to see it from up here. It's pretty amazing. Judges chapter 9. If you have a Bible, there's one underneath uh, your seat. Judges 9, page 209. I want to show you a parable that's in Israel's Scriptures. And this follows... um, the series of judges you had these good judges you had a good judge and typically a bad judge and then you'd have a good judge and bad judges and these were people that were called to rule over Israel one of these persons was Gideon and that's whose story we're coming in on the end of because he had 70 sons by a variety of wives and he had one son by a concubine and that son is Abimelech Abimelech decides that he wants to rule after Gideon is, has died and he decides in order to rule he wants to get rid of the 70 sons the other 70 sons of Gideon And so Jotham is one of the guys, one of the sons of Gideon, and when he finds out about all this plot, picking up in verse 7, where the parable ends up coming in, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, "'Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees?' And the trees said to the fig tree, "'You come and reign over us.' But the fig tree said to them, "'Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees?' And the trees said to the vine, "'You come and reign over us.' But the vine said to them, "'Shall I leave my wine that cheers god and men and go hold sway over the trees?' Then all the trees said to the bramble, "'You come and reign over us.' And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now there's a parable right there. You've got talking objects. You've got trees talking, bramble talking. All right? And so what, the point in reading that is that G- these parables are not some kind of a genre that Jesus made up. Jesus was pulling from something that was familiar to those who had a background in the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's interesting that a third of Jesus' recorded sayings in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are parables. So if you really want to pay attention to Jesus and his teachings, you have to pay attention to the parables. So parables are very powerful. And given the fact that they are spoken to groups of people, it's very likely that they were intended for group conversion. More on that in a moment. Parables usually begin with depictions of everyday life in the first century but then there's often something surreal that disrupts that world. A woman misplaces a small coin. She spends the entire day looking for it. And when she finds it, she throws an expensive late-night party with her neighbors and celebrates the fact that she has found the coin. Now, if that's life in the first century world, and that's normal, that's odd. That's odd. But instead, a parable often begins by sounding very normal, and then it becomes unexpected. It becomes out of place. It becomes disruptive. And the disruption hints of a wider, more surprising reality, as well as of a God who surprises, a God who astonishes. You see, all of us live in our everyday world, and it's a world that makes sense to us for the most part. It's a world that is constructed by our consciousness, and By our awareness of conventional social meaning. And if you're a Christian, if you're someone who's a follower of Jesus, it means you bring ideas about, about God to bear upon this everyday world. So how do these parables work? Well, they shake our image of the way the world should work. They disturb our expectations of the way God should act. And having been shaken, we're invited to ask, what is this alternative world? It's intended to prompt this question, what is this reality being described? Could this be what Jesus calls the kingdom of God? And if so, what if the God of this kingdom is very different from the God of our conventional religious faith? So you see where this is leading? These parables aren't simply lessons to be learned. So if you come to them thinking these are just lessons to be learned, you're mistaken. They're designed to do something. They're designed to convert us. Convert our grasp of reality. Convert us to see the world as God sees it. Convert us to see what most people miss as they go through this world. Convert us to enter the kingdom of God. So why parables? Jesus uses parables to capture his listeners' attention and to stir their imaginations to something bigger. The kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom is like leaven that a woman hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. The kingdom is like a mustard seed that a man sowed in his field. The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The kingdom is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. All of those are from Matthew 13. So you see, Jesus piques his listeners' imaginations and he reveals God's new society, God's new social order, and it's called the kingdom of God. Now for those of you who may be new to the Bible, the idea of a kingdom is rooted in Israel's Israel's narrative, Israel's history of having failed kings, Saul and David and Solomon, all with great aspirations, but yet all failures. And finally, Israel's prophets appeared on the scene first to the kings and then to the people with the vision of a coming kingdom in which the world would be made right. If you're interested where these, this is found, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, Jeremiah 31-34, to 34, Ezekiel 36-37, and 37, Zechariah 8, 3-8. And what's interesting about this is these prophets project this world as one in the future. The Old Testament closes with Israel returning to their land after being in captivity to Babylon, but now being under 400 years of foreign domination, first under Persia, and then under Greece, and then under Rome. It's after 400 years of this foreign domination that Jesus walks onto the scene in Palestine, and he says, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. What Israel had waited 400 years for, always out in the future, Jesus comes onto the scene announcing it is here. And this isn't about a new political or military power taking control of Jerusalem. This is about God's future world finally breaking into the present in Jesus. This isn't about God simply helping individuals become self actualized through private beliefs or spiritual practices. This is public good news about God remaking the world. So Jesus uses the parables to point to something that's tangible, that's real. He said he's saying here's what God's kingdom is about and here's what it looks like to inhabit that reality right now. So you see, this is more than simply a message about forgiveness of sin and about heaven and hell. It's about God's kingdom. His reign is present now. And it changes everything. So the Jesus told stories... shows
2: me that what He wants... is to invite us... to participate in what He's doing. He's inviting us... to be a part of the conversation. And what I want to talk about... is what does it look like... to be a participant... in that conversation... What types of postures might we take toward the text that would help us to be a dialogue partner with God and with each other? Because if you think about it, the fact that Jesus told stories is an incredible act of trust on his part. As any artist or storyteller knows, you're taking a risk when you share your piece of art or your story because it's possible that that piece of art or that story might be interpreted wrongly or poorly. But Jesus is concerned with involving us. And he's not so much concerned that we get the point of the parable, but that we actually engage the text and give the text our attention And I wonder if it's this posture of going to the text and trying to get something out of it, trying to find the thing that actually keeps us from wanting to engage Scripture in an ongoing way. At least that's true for me. I mean, if my point is coming to the text and hoping that after reading it in a mostly distracted way, ten minutes a day, if I expect to, to then have some sort of deposit of information, and if that doesn't happen, why return? But the fact that Jesus told stories is to suggest that that isn't the point of listening to the story or hearing the story. But instead, it's to do something in us. It's to do something to form us. In Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables. And Jesus, not always being clear says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not entirely sure what that means completely, but it, he seems to suggest that to understand is to be given a gift by God. That understanding comes as gift from God, and that is actually only possible in connection to Jesus. To understand the parables is to be connected to Jesus, to listen to Him, to watch Him. So perhaps over time, the parables, these stories, take on an even deeper meaning. And so therefore, good stories, which these parables are, expect the listener and the reader to attend to them and to engage them. They demand our curiosity, that we'll actually ask questions. I mean, in Luke 18, a Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray. It's a parable we've all heard. So who am I in that parable? Am I the Pharisee or am I the tax collector? I know who I want to be, but who actually am I? In Matthew 18, there's the story of a lost sheep. Who's the lost sheep? Am I the lost sheep? Is someone else the lost sheep? The good news is the lost sheep is found, but am I still lost or am I actually found? In Luke 10 there's the famous story of the Good Samaritan. Now am I actually the Good Samaritan who stops to take care of the person who's been beat up in a ditch? Or am I the other three people who pass by and step over? Or is it possible that I'm actually the person in the ditch? Or could it be different depending on when I'm actually reading it? Could I be all of those characters at some point in my life? <laughs> Stories also work, and these ones in particular, work to surprise us. And are we willing to be surprised by the text? I mean, why would Jesus tell a story about a dishonest, man, a dishonest manager? The whole story is about this person who's swindling his employer, because he's being fired. No one's hands are clean in that story. So what am I supposed to make of that? Why would Jesus even tell a story like that? I don't want to be any of the characters. So how do I identify with any one of them? How are we to think about the persistent widow in Luke 18? And how do we connect that story to prayer as Jesus suggests that we do? Is is he simply trying to say that our prayers need to get annoying and long-winded before he'll actually listen to us? Or is something different going on? I mean, such intention and engagement and asking questions and being surprised... ...actually goes against our tendencies of being passive. They require that we engage. I mean, these questions are much different than what does it mean. I mean, how often do we come to a story a parable, scripture, and say, what does this mean? But such a question actually allows us to be distant from the text and expecting that someone is just going to hand over this gift of of complete and utter certainty of what it means, and I don't actually have to engage with it over time. So these questions are actually causing us to participate in the story itself. And Jesus is wanting us to do that and is calling us to do that. A willingness to engage and participate means having a posture of openness to the text that goes against our tendencies to come to the stories already knowing what we'll find. I'll read that again. A willingness to engage and participate means having a posture of openness to the text that goes against our tendencies to come to the stories already knowing what we'll find what we'll find. I mean, how often do you come to a parable and think, been there, done that, I know what it means, so I don't need it anymore. I mean, in Mark 4, Jesus tells the story about good soil and bad soil, and good ground and rocky ground, and, thing, and, and seed growing, but then being choked up. Choked up, maybe. Choked out. <laughs> but... I would assume because I make this mistake, that I go to that text believing I am the good soil. But how do I know I'm the good soil? Is it because I'm here at church? Of course, that must mean I'm good soil. I mean, Jesus kind of disrupts our expectations and calls to question a lot of our preconceived notions. And we'll only notice that if we come to the text with a posture of openness. See, good stories also involve us into a relationship with them in an ongoing way so that we might be formed by them. Good stories ask us to inhabit a world, play by its rules, and then we may be people who have been shaped by that world. The parables invite us into such a world and ask us to play. And now these stories that Jesus tells, they often have abrupt endings and they're confusing. I mean, consider the all-too-famous prodigal son story, right? We know what that means. We know who the lost son represents and we know who the older son represents and we know who the father represents. But if you think about that story, it ends in a way that's very confusing and does not tie all of the loose ends together. This is how it ends. It ends with the older brother and the father talking because the older brother is bitter that the young son has come home and the father is throwing a party. And the young son or the older brother says, how can you do that? And the father says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I mean, maybe we know what that means, but so many questions, if you think about that, at least come to mind. So, What's life going to be like for those three people from here on out? Will the younger brother, will he just go away again and squander money again and again? We don't know. Will the older brother stick around or will he leave the family business and do something else? I have no idea. How is the father supposed to be a father to this, to this son who's been forgiven, but then to this older son while there doesn't seem to be any reconciliation between the two? That's fascinating to me, to ask those questions. And the story, because of how it ends, begs that we ask such questions. Or take the story that's really weird in Matthew 25... about some extremely sleepy bridesmaids. You have five wise virgins, five, five foolish virgins... And they're, they're, they're going to be going out and waiting for the bridegroom. And so they each take their lamps. Five of the, the wise ones, they take oil along with their lamps. The foolish ones, they forget oil. And all of a sudden, there's something, there's a shout that says, the bridegroom is coming. And so they all go out. And of course, five of the women have oil for their lamps. Why do they have lamps? Why do they need oil? I don't even know. And the story is weird. And so, the, but then, so you have these five virgins who, who are ready. Then you have these five foolish virgins who aren't ready. And then these, these five foolish virgins are like, oh man, the oil. Hey, ladies, give me some of your oil. And they're like, yeah, right, get your own oil. And so then these ladies, they jet off to like Home Depot or Lowe's or something. And, and, and so they're going to get some Coleman lanterns that are going to last a really long time. And at in, in that point, the bridegroom actually comes... He gets the the five women who are ready and he takes them into the party, into the celebration and it says he shuts the door. But then the five foolish women, they come and they're pounding on the door showing that they have these incredibly cool lanterns that will last a really long time and the bridegroom says, I don't know you. And that's where the story ends. What do you make of that? But it's interesting. And it could potentially create some good conversation in trying to figure out who we might be and who God might be in the story and how such a story might be intended to form us. Will Willimon says this in his book, Why Jesus? There's surprise endings or lack of endings Their cryptic enigmatic quality suggests that parables are meant to dislodge more than explain. You are forced to review your inherited assessment of the world. You are disconnected from your old familiar world so that now you might be connected to a whole new world. So the parables are in a sense meant to dislodge. And they're to do so with all of us, not just as individuals. The text, as Lou said, it, these parables are to form all of us. It's for group conversion. And so that means it's called to engage us together in what they might mean for us. Not what does this mean for me. But it's, it actually elicits, it's supposed to elicit a conversation. I mean, if you were to watch a quality film or read some quality literature or incredible television, that's ex- precisely what those stories do, is they invite you into the conversation. And notice the word quality. Because quality film or quality, well quality stories in any form, ask that you participate and ask better questions than Team Edward or Team Jacob. They actually want you to participate together in what the story might mean and what it's saying. I mean, think about Breaking Bad. Think about The Wire. I mean, you have these characters and you're thinking, who are the good guys? Who am I rooting for? What's this relationship between Walter White and Jesse Pinkman? How am I supposed to think about that? Or McNulty and Stringer Bell. I mean, all of a sudden, it begins to, to have, a, we have a conversation about what, who those people are, what they might mean to us, and how we're to involve ourselves with them. I mean, it's a, really, it's a much more interesting conversation. I'm reading the book Ulysses with a Friend, and it's crazy. And I don't even understand it a lot, but it actually allows me to have a conversation. It allows the two of us to have an incredible conversation because it's, it's ongoing and it's something we're participating in together. And the parables are asking that we treat them the same way. That we participate in them together. And so as we move forward through this summer into the parables, I'd like to encourage you in a few ways and ask you to consider some things. Some postures, some ways that we might engage these together. The first is I would ask that you would pray and ask Jesus to give us ears to hear what he might be saying. And how the kingdom, the, the life of the kingdom, and the image of the kingdom might inform the way that we live. I want to encourage you to come to these stories with a posture of humility. As someone who is willing to hear these stories afresh. As if for the first time. Not assuming that you know what they mean before you even read a word. And I want to challenge you to engage these stories and participate in them. Ask questions of the text. It's okay after you read something once to say, what does that mean? It's okay after you've read something 50 times to ask, what do I make of that? That's actually a posture of humility that scripture requires that we have. So that we might be formed by it. I also want to encourage you to participate in these texts with one another. To have conversations with each other about what these texts might be saying to us as a church in Long Beach. In this time and place. So be thinking about who your dialogue partners might be now. Because these texts, these are Jewish forms. And because they're Jewish forms, they're not so concerned with certainty. But with formation. And that happens together in a community as we begin to read and talk about these texts. So think about the people who are open to these types of conversations, who want to listen, and who want to engage the text in the same way that you do. And have those conversations. So that together we might have a group conversation. ...and be formed by what it is God wants to be saying to us. See, the parables ask that we consider that these stories matter... ...and even more so that the person who is telling these stories matters. That Jesus himself is wanting to speak to us, his people, afresh. Now let us pray that he will do that as we engage these stories this summer. Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear... I pray and ask that you would help us to engage your scripture in the way that you want us to. I pray that you would help us to be people who are humble and who are open to what it is you have to say. I pray that you would help us to be curious. You'd help us to be surprised. I pray that any way that we might resist openness, any way that we might want to run away from a conversation or a challenge or a call I pray God that you would not let us do that that you would draw us near to you and that we would see these stories that we would see scripture as an act of grace on your part in love that you have given us your word so that we might be invited into the conversation and I pray that we would take that seriously And that we would participate and engage. And that you would give us the attention required to be formed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.